All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best. You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcast. Hello, welcome to your podcast. This is Gary Scheller. And I'm Ken Mills. This is podcast number 58. It's uh, the first part of our Love Gun Retrospective Roundtable. We had a lot of good discussion, a lot of fun stuff coming up, and uh, and you've got a little bit of audio here. excellent stuff what is this this is actually from music from the fact volume 5 which you can download free and this is almost human by andy samford and uh, folks like travis home bears on there uh shandy's 777 the wildflowers cameron duty les paul and erickson a bunch of people jim and andy eric car 91 which is not to be confused with the actual eric car and they cover such songs as i was made for loving you crazy crazy nights strutter don't you hesitate? The Oath, Who Wants to Be Lonely, Kiss the Girl Goodbye, Almost Human, She, Parasite, Making Love, and the love theme from Kiss. So, this is all at uh, Kiss FAQ? Yep, and there's links in our show notes. So awesome. Download awesome. and have fun. Very cool. And, of course, this brings us to the album we're going to be discussing. I know I say this all the time. I'm starting to sound like Ricky Rackman from uh, Headbangers Ball. You guys are my favorite band. But this is honestly <laughs> one of my all-time you know, Desert Island Kiss Studio albums. I can't say that about every Kiss Studio album. I wouldn't say that about Asylum. I, I don't know that I would say that about Hot in the Shade, but this is one of the ones I want on the Desert Island. So without further ado, this is our roundtable discussion, part one of our roundtable discussion about Love Gun. Shut up and play Love Gun. And we've got some great guests for a roundtable discussion of one of Kiss's greatest records, Love Gun. Turns 35 this year, and I want to welcome our uh, our amazing panel of co-hosts. We've got, first and foremost, no stranger to the podcast, Joe Casey, famed Hello. writer and creator of Ben 10 and many comics that you enjoy when you go to your local comic shop. Joe? Hello. How the hell are you? I'm good. How are you guys? I'm really good. Thanks. We've also got the creator, the artist, the musician, the mastermind behind Gustopher Yellowgold. If you listen back a few episodes to our show, we had him as a featured guest, and he's none other than Morgan Taylor, big longtime Kiss fan and a creative guy all around. Morgan. Hey guys. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm getting a tattoo on my arm of the it says number 46. Oh, there you go. <laughs> was that the was that? <laughs> Podcast 46, that's right. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Between uh, Joe Casey, who is the creator of Ben 10, and Gus Friella Gold, my nieces and nephews, this will probably be their favorite podcast. Seriously, though. <laughs> but when we start talking about the um, printed and real Kiss blood, when we start talking about uh, Almost Human and the girls on the cover of Love Gun, that's the part that they can't listen to. Exactly, exactly, exactly. There's a lot of bleeping. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. And we are also joined by Andrew Scambetti. Of the yep. tribute band Mr. Speed, who's been the a long time. The award winning. Yes, the award winning. Award winning. Number one, second to none. World's best kiss tribute band. 
There you Amazing. Go. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Andrew. Long-time hey. fan and... Long-time fan. Good to be here. And, and a long-time contributor. And how are you and, and the guys in Mr. Speed feeling after this? I mean, that's huge. You want well, to talk you know, about that? Well, you know, it was great. I mean, the thing that I'll always remember is uh, after we were awarded this, I walked up to Tommy and I said, you know, you have no idea what this means to a kid from New Jersey. Because, you know, it's you grow up, you know, looking at the Kiss albums, listening to Kiss, watching Kiss. And now for them to acknowledge something that you do, it's more than I could put into words. So it was great. I always remember it. Yeah, you guys worked damn hard for this too. So we congrats. did. Well, we we could say we knew you when. <laughs> and and I am the thirteenth member. The thirteenth member. That's right. yeah. So we're talking today about one of the great Kiss albums, probably the real last album from the classic Kiss lineup in in many ways. The, the last uh, true Kiss album. Uh, ostensibly, it is the last Kiss record to feature only those four guys. Yeah, there were uncredited additional musicians, but this is the first album to have all four members on lead vocals. And presumably the, the last one to have just those four guys, just Gene, Paul, Ace, and Peter playing all the instruments. Although that's, there's it's whispering. It's up for debate, right? Yeah. It's not a, much, not much to, well, is it, a, is it a case of where people are confusing the uncredited additional players, like for example, the guy that played congas on Almost Human? Or are we you mean talking Peter about Chris? No, Excuse no, me? he didn't. Really? He did not. Is he a congist? <laughs> is he a congist? <laughs> is he a congist? <laughs> He's Congolese. Um, I I don't know. Yeah, I no, doubt I think, it. So yeah, yeah. Jimmy Malin on congas on Almost Human. There you go. All right, all right. And it is Gene on piano for uh, Christine sixteen. Yeah, but we're going to get into that, of course. Yeah. So this, you know, this album, um, for me, one of the things I always think about when I think of Love Gun is uh, an article that I read online. It was it was one of those um, Kiss Asylum thought vaults back in the day, back in like ninety seven or ninety eight, when they were working on Psycho Circus on the Psycho Circus record. Is it Ron Albany's thought vault? Exactly, Ron Albany's great stuff, and he was. Uh, I, I hope I'm get, yeah, I hope we're crediting him right. But he talked about what is the formula that you need with this lineup to make a successful KISS record, or at least a KISS record that scratches all the itches. And what he talked about was having that balance of, of Gene songs, Paul songs, and vocals by Ace and Peter. You know, clearly that's what they were shooting for with Psycho Circus, but I think that they achieved it, you know, finally and perfectly on Love Gun. Yeah, well, I, I concur. It's one of the albums where you don't think that the material is heavy for one certain member. I know it's argued that, you know, Ace only had one song, Peter had one song, but I almost can kind of hear their groove on these songs much more than, say, the Psycho Circus songs, and obviously way much more than the Dynasty songs. You know, I think this album, it's definitely more of a collaborative effort than uh, what came after. Yeah. It's a pretty its a pretty Gene-dominant album, actually, isn't it? Well, Gene has more lead vocals than Paul on this, doesn't he? I think you guys More are forgetting songs are Paul saying. That's right, yeah. So oh, Tomorrow Tonight, Tomorrow Tonight, I always forget about right. that one. Why, how could you forget Tomorrow Tonight? It's clearly such a live classic, because if you listen to the reaction that the audience is having on a live, too, that is a fan favorite. Um, we'll get there. Uh, when you think about it, Love Gun was the album that they did knowing that they were going to do a follow-up, a live album. Right. right. So when you think about the synthesized Tomorrow and Tonight live version on a live, too, they were probably hoping that it was just going to be another rock and roll night. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, I agree. That's, 
that's a good way of putting it. I think I think you nailed it. And I think even just going into the writing of that song, you know, uh, trying to put together like another anthem, another shouted out loud or rock and roll all night, it had to be part of the thought process for it. They were yeah, they were trying to write another rock and roll night on purpose, sort of like the the Chubby Checkers Let's Twist Again. Right. Like they did last summer? Because right. <laughs> right. even even the, we can rock all day, we can roll all night, they're actually almost even quoting their, their hit song. Oh, no no doubt. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be cool to have a song called Rock and Roll Night again? <laughs> like we did last, last year. Uh, yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> I'd love it. Rock and Roll to you, three. <laughs> there was a song that started making its rounds during the reunion tour. Um, someone did it. It was called uh, I Used to Rock and Roll All Night. And it was like, you know, all, all these off the wall lyrics, like, you know, um, I want to rock and roll night, rub on a tube of Ben Gay or something like that, because they were making fun of how old Kiss was when they uh, reunited. Yeah, I remember D- Dennis Miller cracked wise. He made some kind of joke, um, before the Kiss reunion ever happened. He showed like a, a picture of an empty uh, arena and was like, Hey, everybody, it's a Kiss reunion. And yeah. I'm so glad that he was the one who wound up having to introduce them at the, um, MTV they, Awards. Right, when they did the, like, uh, Brooklyn Bridge thing. It's like a little ha-ha. There you go. I'm glad that, that you brought up the reunion because clearly, you know, going back to Love Gun, this was the look and the sound and the the staging and, and the, I don't know, the visual, the, the whole thing. This is where it seems to have all come together flawlessly. And the iconic Kiss image of how they looked on the cover of that record, the photos that... um Barry Levine took of them, the, the, the ones that adorned all the products from the, the Mego dolls to the color forms. I mean, this is where that all happened, right, on yeah, this record. This is where branding became as important as band. This was the album. Yeah. Well, it's oh, funny. No, when, no. when someone says Kiss, the first thing you think of is them on the blocks, that photo shoot with Barry Levine. That's the first image that always pops into my head. And also, this was the first era that I was introduced to when I got into Kiss. So this is always that that classic look, that special look for me. So Andrew, how how old are you? I was three. I actually got into it by watching an old, uh, and you know, some of the younger people won't even know what this is, but I was actually watching a recorded Betamax cassette <laughs> of Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. And I guess for one reason or another, it didn't start at the beginning. And the first thing I saw was uh, the concert scene of I Stole Your Love. Oh, and I remember wow. them descending. From you know the the stacks and I'm seeing all the smoke and I'm I'm looking at the crowd I'm just like I I didn't know I mean they really you know they assaulted my senses and I liked them even before music because you know the next scene they're being superheroes so it was like oh I don't want to get the album let me get the comic book let me get the action figures so they had that they had those that younger audience branded because they say you know you might not like music now but you do like us being superheroes and you will like our music so that's how they got me. So it's kind of like Kiss action figures albums sold separately. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and, 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 and this is definitely that year where, because of the the merchandising and because of just how it all came together for them on a branding level, I would say that everyone of a certain generation that were younger than the typical you know rock fan at the time, this is probably the year and the album and the branding that got through to them. I mean, for me, it was the KISS trading cards, which almost all of them were taken from that, this era, the Love Gun tour, the, you know, the Love Gun album, those costumes. So this was, it really, in retrospect, even though it was sort of the beginning of the first downfall, it was important in the long run. It was was incredibly important that they, they 
got those younger fans because we were really the, the generation that sustained them through the 80s and, you know, into the reunion tour. Yeah, I, I think – oh, no, I, I was going to say, I remember, I remember you saying something – Joe, I think I, I remember you saying something like that when we were talking to Bill Starkey as well, and, and, and you're right. It was that was sort of the down payment that they put um, on on having longevity. You know, yeah, maybe definitely. it was overkill in the long run, but they needed to do it. Well, it had to be overkill to get through to the parents to get to the you know six, seven, eight year olds out there, and and it worked. It, it absolutely worked, even though at the time. They paid a price for it. Right. But absolutely. in the long run, it absolutely paid off. This is sort of like the crossroads where they still had all the, all the rock fans and they were just getting all the kids in. It was kind of the, the, the pinnacle before the original rock fans dropped away, I think. Right. And wasn't it this or Live 2, like right around that era that you got into them, Morgan? Yeah, it was actually the um, Hype and Glory was what my first thing I saw. Oh, right, yeah. Which yeah. would just be a few months after this, wouldn't it? How, how did that make you a Kiss fan? I, I don't know why, you know, whatever was on the TV at the time, I was just at home and this show came on and, you know, it was Edward New, Edwin Newman, right? The Hyper Glory show was on and I saw Kiss and I saw the, I saw him on stage and I think it was, but in my memory it was a, it was a, somebody throwing a firebomb out of their hand, but then I realized later it was, it was spitting fire. But, um, I freaked out, and my mom said, it's like, I don't want to watch that down here. <laughs> and uh, so she sent me up, and I watched it in their bedroom. I watched the rest of it, and I was I just I was completely blown away. Um, yeah, I remember I just, you talking about how you had to run upstairs to, like, you know, it was one of those old TVs you had to turn on, and, and like, the picture didn't Yeah, just, just the sound started. Yeah, yeah, and it was, like, waiting. It seemed like an eternity waiting for the tubes of the television to warm up. Yeah. And uh, and then it came back on. I you know it, it seems like it's such a, a vivid memory, just scorched in. But uh, you know it was only really a few minutes of time. But it was completely indelible. But that's, that's a perfect example. That's okay. a perfect example, though. That land of hype and glory. That kiss segment. If you watch it now and listen to what Edwin Newman is saying, it's an indictment of Kiss and how they, you know, market themselves. And you know, I mean, it's it's really. A negative portrayal editorially, but when you're seven years old and you're just seeing those images and, and seeing those, you know, I mean, you're just blown away. You don't give a goddamn what Edwin Newman's saying about the commentary goes completely over your head, and that was the genius of that band. Even uh, you know a negative editorial, as long as they had their picture or some video or even an interview. Yeah, uh, it, it got through to the audience it was intended for, and that that's a big deal. That's that's very difficult to do in entertainment is to be able to um, sell yourself uh, through a, a negative commentary about what you're doing. I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult to do, and they did it almost effortlessly. You know, they did it incredibly well, and um, shockingly too, because I. I I mean, I can't say for sure, and I've I've never really talked to any of them about this, but they don't seem like a band who really likes criticism. I mean, and 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 I I, I can't say that across the board because you know clearly they don't really care. Um, they you know I, I think clearly, I, I think they do care. I think that's what Gene has developed his stance. 
is he, his, his stance is he pretends he doesn't care, but he really does. I mean, if you look at, right, I mean, cause, cause look at how they talk about the elder, carnival souls. I mean, clearly these are things where, um, one could point to the commercial success or lack thereof and say, you know, that's why they don't like it perhaps. But, um, I mean, that's, you know, that's as much of an indicator of, of, um, of criticism as anything, right? Whether people will buy it or not. I mean, well, that's was huge. They're yeah. entertainers and an entertainer's barometer. Of success. I mean, a comedian's entertain, you know, barometer for, for success is whether or not the audience laughs. Right. At their joke. If the audience doesn't laugh, it's a bad joke. And I, I think that's always how Gene and Paul have deflected the things that have failed in their career, which is they get there first and say it wasn't good, even though we can all go back to the PR for the elder and see how great they thought it was. But, you know, as soon as the, as soon as they hear crickets, they they run, you know, and that's 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 the type of entertainer they are. Well, let me let me uh, let me touch on that for a second because there's two things that struck me when we were preparing this, and and I think we're talking about both of them uh, inadvertently here. One is how confident Kiss were, Kiss was, when when you know around this era, right, around the Love Gun era, and I and I don't, of course I don't know what they really felt or thought or anything, but they were super confident around this time, and. And, you know, they were in such a hurry to get things done, it seems. Um, they clearly had intended to do an Alive 2 hot on the heels of the, you know, the Japan tour, the first Japan tour, because there are those recordings of, of what's referred to as the Lost Alive 2. We've played some of them on the show before, and they're great. Um, but the, I guess the complaint or the concern was that it was too much material that had already appeared on the first Alive record. So they were in a real hurry. Um, but a very confident hurry. They were they were hugely successful. It was already you know astronomical sales. Um, and then the second piece, or, or sort of what's related to that, is that there's not a lot of promo material in the way of interviews or um, you know Gene or Paul or Peter Ace talking about the tracks on this record or or you know radio uh, interviews about Love Gun. Right? I mean, because there's tons about rock and roll over and and going back. To, to, Lots and lots of them talking about Destroyer, of course, probably explaining a lot of it. But not a lot about Love Gun. Have you guys ever noticed that or encountered that too? Well, I think that they were, Kiss worked at such a frantic pace in the, you know, mid to late seventies that I think they were outpacing a lot of print deadlines, which are usually about three months out. And back then, God knows, they might have been longer. But, um, so it's not like, I mean, they were making moves so quickly that it, it took more mainstream media a while to catch up. And I think that's why there was never, you know, I just remember when I was, you know, seven, eight years old and just getting into the band, there was not a lot of mainstream press on them. Uh, and I, I think that's the reason. They were just moving so fast that the press could not catch up. And, and you couldn't plan for something uh, in the way that, you know, album re- releases are planned now with huge PR pushes and everything is totally plotted out when that Rolling Stone cover is going to hit and, 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 and those type of things. They were just, they were just moving too fast. And it what must I think, have been. Um, what yeah. I think this album, you know, lacks in, P- in like, I guess, vocal PR, like interviews or press or whatever, I think it makes up for it in commercial press. And what I mean by that is this era has the most commercials than any other era. You have, you know, the Alive 2, you have all the toys, 
Then you have the Love Gun commercial. You have all these other commercials that basically they were selling toys, but also it was a commercial for an album, too, I think. So what this lacks in, in interviews, I think it makes up for in commercials, because that's the most commercial of any era. Hi, this is Ace Frehley, and you're listening to Podcast. And, but it's an interesting shift, too. I mean, you're absolutely right, Andrew. Like, the, the coverage as far as, you know, being on TV for the, thir- you know, critical 30-second slot selling the Mego dolls or the, mm-hmm. you know, Kiss face makeup or whatever. I mean, all of that is was super important. But to go back to something that Ken was saying, you know, this is the sh- this is where the balance started to tip, or it became a balance of band and brand. I mean, it, it's I think noteworthy that um, that they didn't really do a lot of interviews to talk about the music on Love Gun, and it's noteworthy too that we're you know however many minutes into this discussion and haven't talked really much about the music either, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I mean, even before even before that, I mean, the 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 records that came prior to Love Gun. They were still talking an awful lot about the songs and the, and the material on it, mm-hmm. and it's it's solid. I mean, I think it's incredibly strong material on this record. I don't know if anybody knows this. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the branding and the merchandise, but I, I'm always under the impression that things like the Kiss dolls and all that stuff really happened in the wake of the Alive Two and in the fall of. 78 with the movie and the solo albums and all that stuff. Am I wrong about that? Is, did, the, did the dolls and the radios and all the, and the makeup kits was that 77 or was that 78? Well, I think the comic started it in 77 and it just kind of flourished from the comic book or the yeah. Didn't the right, com- what, didn't that first Marvel comic come out right when Love Gun did? Yeah, it did because there's an advertisement yeah. for it in Love Gun. Uh-huh. And funny yeah. enough, they were still in the Destroyer costumes with that comic book. It was probably drawn months earlier. I guess what I'm saying is that that kind of big sort of brand push, I think you you mean you need months and months to plan for that stuff. And I'm I'm just assuming that, and again maybe I'm remembering it wrong that when they know that they've got a movie coming out, that they know that they're doing four solo albums, that they know that they're not going to be touring, that they can plan for this kind of big push. And you know I'm just saying my memory of of this. I mean, just to tie it back into Love Gun, that you know, the Love Gun record was still part of the cycle of we're a rock band. We, you know, we put out albums, we go out on tour, and that that was still the treadmill they were on, as opposed to this is going to be part of a huge marketing push. This is going to be part of a, it's certainly a nationwide branding experiment with toys and right. you know, made-for-TV movies and merchandising and comic books and all that stuff. I, I mean... It, no, you're right. I think Joe Lovegun is the last of that, you know, that kind of, we're a rock band, this is this is what we do. And and what came right after it is the beginning of, here, this is, you know, here we are with dolls and stuff, and here is the Dynasty era and the Unmasked era and whatever. Um, I mean, look at the timeline, right? So March 1977, they wrap up the U.S. tour for Rock and Roll Over. End of that same month, they're in Japan, Right. April, March and April in Japan. June, Love Gun comes out. July, they're on tour. I mean, that Breakneck is incredible. Breakneck case. Unbelievable. Yeah, they're on tour recording the live album already. Yeah. You kind of I mean, wonder how much of this was, uh, you kind of wonder how much of this was actually predetermined before they even went out and did it. I know there are contracts dating back to like 76, I think, that mention the solo albums. But you almost yeah, kind of wonder. You're right. 
you almost kind of wonder what they had in the trenches saying, okay, we'll release this, that, and the other thing. We're going to hold that back and put that on the next one. Or You just don't know. And maybe we never will know. But, I mean, I think that a lot of the original, I guess, hysteria, if you will, was such pre-planned. And it was, you know, them not showing all the cards that they had in their deck. They were just kind of giving one here, one there to make it look like, you know, wow, Kiss is a band that they release you know, two albums a year, and they're on the road all the time. How do they make time for it? Well, that's well, exactly what I was going to. That's the point I was going to make. I think you could, if you could lay it all out on some kind of graph, you would see that the the merchandising push happened exactly when they were not on the road, and when they got back on the road with Dynasty, the merchandising recedes again. There's this period of, you know, summer '78 to uh, summer '79, which I think. I, I would argue would be the peak of their merchandising, and it's and it's because they were not on the road. When they were on the road, that's what they were doing. They, it, they were. I don't think they could multitask as nearly as well as everybody thought they could. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I just thought of something too. When there was that gap between the reunion tour and the Psycho Circus tour, that's when Spencer's was releasing like all these hundreds and thousands of Kiss tchotchkes and busts and lava lamps and all this, you know. Well, isn't it the same way today, Andrew? I mean, right now we've got the Monster Golf thing, we've got the Hello Kitty, we've got all these various things happening. We know that there's an album that's already been recorded, but there's all this extraneous stuff that that, that they're pushing right now. You know, like they've got a book coming out and so on and so forth. But when that album hits, it'll be kiss time again. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I guess I never really noticed that until, you know, you mention it now that there's such a surge in other things while there's this downtime in the album. But almost, too, I mean, it's also kind of chained together in a way because I know everyone who frequents Kiss FAQ might say, you know, hey, Kissology Volume 4, that should have been out months ago while we're waiting for this album. But I think, you know, that's going to come out a lot, if it ever comes out, closer to the album. But, you know, it's a good point. I, I think you guys are right. For us, we see the release of a Kiss record as, like, oh, this is, you know, this is the big thing. It's the, it's, it's the new album, right? Like, this is the landmark event of any year in, in history is the release of an album. Right. But probably not to the general, I mean, well, the general public doesn't care. But, you know, it, it really, uh, the album is, is kind of a blip. At this point, because it is just another piece of of merchandise, and and an excuse to tour, it's an excuse to tour now. Yeah, and an excuse to tour with not much, with not nearly as much kind of variation in what they're doing in in the presentation and 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 whatnot as there was, say, the dramatic shift. Right, you know, brand new costumes, brand new stage. You know, four songs from the album, five maybe. I I don't remember exactly how many, but a, a chunk of the material was being performed live as soon as they hit the road. You know, I just want to talk about one more thing before we get into track by track. I know, funny, no one's mentioned this. The first thing I did when I sat down this morning to getting ready to do this is I grabbed my Love Gun album, and I dumped out all the goodies that were in there. You had the the, the dust cover with that cool artwork on it. You had the merchandise order for them, and you had the gun, too. I mean, I, I think one of the coolest things about Kiss albums in the 70s is all the stuff they came with. Nobody else did that, and nobody else does that, so... You know, it's very cool to, you know, get an album, you get a little cardboard gun, and you get this order form, too, that's selling all these things. You know, had we known back in the 70s, we would have bought 800 New York City <laughs> Skyline posts for $2 each. You know, right. I mean, you right. just, I mean, you look at that stuff and you're like, oh, my God, how much did I pay for that? Way more than $2. Oh, my God, yeah, absolutely. Does anyone, and, else, and you, think that the, does anyone else think that the gun was a... Um, a deliberate and not not altogether cynical attempt 
to shift focus from the fact that the title track is a dick song. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, because if you have a you have a toy gun in there and, right. and you can market the album as having that toy gun, you really are kind of masking the true nature of that song. You know what I mean? You're saying, but with the gun, and like Joe's saying how it's like to mask the fact that it's kind of a phallic reference, or kind of a phallic reference, is that, yeah, it's that perfect balance between this being uh, comic stuff for kids and still being kind of a dangerous rock and roll band for those people who have been there since the beginning. And I think that's uh, it's masterfully done. Well, I think that they needed that gun in there, to be honest, because... We talked about this once before, the mismatch of an album title to the artwork, right? Like Asylum is an album title that has nothing to do with the visual of that cover. That cover could have been called Crazy Nights, and that could have worked. I was going to say, whoever designed that cover needs to be in an asylum. That is what I was going to say. It should have been called like a steaming pile of crap because, I mean, that cover and some of the songs in there, come on. Oh boy! Uh, I personally love that album. It's the, so the cover. The cover is just not there. Put that it's next. My, to, put that next to you know Revenge or Destroyer. The cream rises to the top. I think. I think that this is one of those times, to be honest, where there is a mismatch between the title and the cover, and and it's hard to say that because they're so indelibly linked for all of us now. But um, what the hell does that painting have to? I mean, yes, clearly I know what it has to do with Love Gun, but like it's kind of a mismatch. Well, let me say this. I, I said this back on the Rock and Roll Over um, podcast, but uh, Love Gun is really, uh, on, in a lot of ways, the follow-up to Destroyer. And it, the, a lot of the lessons that they learned from the success of Destroyer, they applied to Love Gun because it was too it was too soon to apply them to Rock and Roll All Night, which is why you go back to the Ken Kelly painting. Oh, you mean Rock and Roll oh, Over, right? Oh, Rock and Roll Over, sorry, yeah. yeah. The, the um, apology for Destroyer. Yes, but Love Gun is more, I mean, it's really the, the self-referential songs, the, the production, you know, the attempts at production on this record, let me say. And, the, you know, and the cover, I mean, it's, it's, it's really just, let's give them an album that is, has a little bit more Destroyer in it than Rock and Roll Over did. Excellent and that, point. And I think the, the, cover, the cover is really the, the biggest example of that. Excellent point, Joe. I don't know that they were necessarily hearkening back to or trying to, you know, kind of do a sequel to Destroyer so much as they learned how to balance the, the Destroyer formula with the rock and roll over formula. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's weird because when they were doing rock and roll all over, they thought that Destroyer was a flop. Yeah. Right. So at this point, they could look back and say, okay, this approach worked and this approach worked. Let's kind of go in the middle there. Yeah, I totally agree with that, yeah. And you notice they didn't do a ballad, right? I mean, that's a you know glaring omission um, of sorts on Love Gun, is that, they're, like, you know, they had two in a row with the Peter Chris kind of, like, pop radio song, right? Beth and Hard Love Woman. On this one, he's got Hooligan, right? I, I don't, and I don't, and, and I don't think they were gunning for, like, a third, you know, third time's a charm Peter Chris. um you know, song for for the ladies to listen to. It's just, I don't know. I mean, they, like, it, it, it was formulaic, but not too formulaic. Like compared to say Psycho Circus, where it's like, oh, here's Peter Chris's song. You know, it's Beth Part Two. I just it's, don't think they'd written one. I, I mean, that's yeah. really my feeling. Is they just uh, they didn't write one, 
that worked. And I mean, when we get go through the tracks, you know, I'll bring it up again. I think that's why there's a cover song on this record. Mm. Yeah, Stan Penrich just didn't have it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys uh, notice that this album is claimed to have been produced by Kiss and Eddie Kramer, as no. opposed to just Eddie Kramer? No, I didn't think of that. No, that's a good point. What about Rock and Roll Over? Rock and Roll Over was exclusively produced by Mr. Eddie Kramer. There you go. With special thanks to Sean Delaney. I think the I like cover, the, the cover of the the painting on the cover makes them look like action figures. Yeah, it does. Oh yeah, you know, definitely. It's almost like there's the face that doesn't look like the people with makeup on. It's almost like that's their face. Well, if there was ever a time when those four guys had those physiques, <laughs> yeah. like that was the end of of Peter Chris coming remotely close to looking like that. <laughs> Well, seriously, this album could have been called Dick. Or this album could have been, I mean, it was. Could have, it this is. could have been called, what they could have called it was Shock Me or, or uh, Almost Human. There you go. Almost Human would have been great. Right? Because look at them. They look almost human. Right? Shock Me could have worked a little bit, but, you know, Got Love for Sale would have meant something very different. And this, uh, this, this, this almond, this al- almond? This album. Yes, this almond. This almond, <laughs> it spawned a font of its own. How about that? Yeah, it did. Right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that, that look of that, the writing, the, the whole thing top to bottom was iconic. But you're right, they had that, they had to have that gun in there to say, you know, hey guys, it's, it's not just penis. Okay, (laughs) I was, I was 14 when this album came out. At the time, believe it or not, I wasn't aware that Love Gun was necessarily a penis. I wasn't thinking about that either. I heard it when I was probably about six or seven or eight, and it didn't occur to me either. So when, so how old were you guys when you realized that Love Gun was in fact a Love Gun bang? Thirty-five. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, it's it's means something else. You know, I remember, <laughs> I remember where I was. I remember the exact moment I was in line at a subway. Yeah, yeah. No, I can't think of it. Very good. But, uh, before, but just before we get to the, start talking about the music, I, I gotta, one of my favorite things I've read in history is about, is, is a quote from Ken Kelly about the front cover. There's actually in history, there's a really cool, um, rough sketch of them in the Love Gun stance, but they're in the back alley. In this back alley. Oh, yeah, 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 I forgot about that the, one. The girl is like rock chicks with skirts and you can see buns and things. But, um, wow. what Ken, Kelly says is like he was still working. The quote is, "I was still working on that cover right up to the last second. I mean, the messenger drove out to my house, lifted the painting right off my easel, put it in his truck, and whisked it off to Manhattan. And to this day, I still believe that there are some areas of Peter's costume that are not finished." Yeah, and it's the zipper section. There are no zippers on this one. Whether that was originally designed in there, but the album cover is missing the zippers on his legs. See, now leave it to the to the drummer of. <laughs> Acclaimed Kiss tribute band Mr. Speed to notice that, right? Hey, That's I gotta awesome. learn my I gotta learn my character, so you know I with a fine tooth comb. No, it's great. That's great. Well, yeah. Did, did Peter I, Chris's make ever look the same from album to album? Um, I think between Alive Two and Dynasty is where it looked the most similar. Um, starting on Alive is when it really started to um, evolve into what we know and love today, but like. You know, Kiss, Harder Than Hell, and Dress to Kill, you had very, very different makeup designs, especially with the eyes. And um, 
I mean, everybody knows that the makeup on the first album cover was done by um, a cartoonist or, or, or a professional artist. It wasn't done by Peter. That was never his makeup live. But there was definitely um, a lot of change between those first three albums. It didn't really, um, I don't know, evolve to what we know and love now and still around Kiss Alive. And this, to me, is the visual peak. Oh, I agree, absolutely. So let's go into this. Let's talk about the material on Love Gun. Right? Enough yakking, let's get tracking. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, right? <laughs> These are some, you know, some of the most beloved Kiss songs to this day, I think, right? So th- it starts off with a bang, and, and this is where they, you know, this is what they open the tour with. It's a kind of Kiss song. I Stole Your Love. Let's listen to a live recording from that era. Here we go. <laughs>
like, here's a random little piece of Kiss minutia. They didn't initially start the tour opening up with I Stole Your Love. It was still Detroit, and I Stole Your Love was, like, I don't know, fifth or sixth in the set. One of those early bootlegs from the Canadian leg of the tour, I Stole Your Love wasn't the opener. It's weird. It's weird to think of that. To me, that is, like, the opening song for this uh, era. And it's still weird to me that, you know, that they put it in the middle of the set list on the reunion tour. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, that was strange. So let me ask you guys something. Actually, Andrew, let me, you know, let me ask you directly because you are a drummer here. And if I'm putting you on the spot, good. <laughs> Can we address the rumor that on Paul's songs on this album, it's a different drummer, it's not Peter Chris? Well, it's songs like this, it's songs like this one especially, it's missing that, that swing. And you can almost kind of tell when, when Peter's playing live too, that not on live too, but I mean live as well, that I don't think Peter played on this song. Just judging, listening to what's going on, like uh, on some of the fills and listening to what's going on in the beat, I don't think Peter played on this one. But that's just me. Hmm. I mean, it could have been, I mean, it could have been someone whispering in Peter's ear, oh, you need to play like this, you need to play like that. But to me, it never sounded like Peter. Especially the, the, uh, the fill in the intro. That doesn't sound like Peter to me at all. You're talking about the like the build up, like just yeah, yeah, the, okay. the, huh. all that, all that, you know, ostinato stuff on the toms didn't sound like Peter to me. Hmm. Any, anyone else? I would say that the Paul songs, it, it does not seem like it's Peter at times. Hmm. I would say that if it was Peter, that what was happening was, and you know, this is this is pretty well documented at, at this point. Paul Stanley was basically bringing finished demos to the sessions. Mm-hmm. That were pretty much exactly what he wanted. And if any, if anything, if Peter did play on his songs, it was Paul saying, "Copy this exactly," and that that would also mean copying, in a sense, the style of a drummer that had already laid down those demo tracks. And if Peter ever so, could have done that, this was the. I mean, this was he was great around this era. I think. Well, but this is the, this is another thing, and sort of an overall album thing. I think this is the the first record that they did that was. I kind of, I always look at this record as sort of a typical, you know, mid to late 70s New York City session album, you know, where they, and they did it in, you know, three weeks. So I always kind of picture that this is the, this is the album where no, no four band members were in the same room at the same time. They would just kind of come in at different times. And it was very, uh, you know, like, I got a session tonight, man. And they go down to the studio and they do their shit. And it sounds like it too. It sounds, it's the most homogenized sound of a Kiss record, even more so than the lower quality productions of the first three records. This one, to me, is sort of a typical, you know, New York City, going to go to Studio 54 and then record some shit later at the record plant kind of album. So I could see, you know, Paul just going, just shut the fuck up and play this and let's get on with it because we've got three weeks to make this record. Well, it's funny that you say that because... I don't know if anyone's ever listened to those uh, recordings of the Dynasty sessions that are floating around, where you can hear numerous times Paul say, you know, hey, Peter, I don't fuck up your songs, don't fuck up mine. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it very well could have happened. Probably Paul could have came in and said, hey, I write the songs, you play these songs. Yeah. And that could have been where the tension started. Wow. Well, it also follows suit because uh, we'll get to it later, but Gene was working with the Van Halen brothers uh, for Christine 16, and he basically had Ace copy what Eddie Van Halen did. So it seems like you could be onto something again, Joe. I don't. I mean, I would think that there could be a reason for the um, for the split production credit too. That Eddie Kramer was dealing with a band that was 
now absolutely entrenched in their own success and riding high on it, and that he was just trying to keep this thing together. Had to make a record under an extremely tight deadline, much tighter than a band of their success should have had to do. So, you know, I mean, this is, to me, it's a very, it's a, I mean, while, as we go song by song, they're great songs, but as a, as a record, as a whole production, it's, to me, it's really kind of a patchwork of, of uh, sounds and of production techniques. I, I think it's Eddie Kramer just trying to, just trying to ride that horse, man. He's, he's sitting there going, I've got three weeks, so I can just make it through these three weeks, and, you know, I can go <laughs> lay on a beach somewhere. He's just trying to get it all on tape. Ken, you and I have talked about this. That where we differ is, I think you you think you hear this as a very um, not a cohesive record, like too many you know too many people going in different directions. I, I hear this as the last cohesive Kiss record. Well, certainly the last one by this lineup. Um, right, but there's a big difference. Like we we noted the uh, production credits. This album is produced by Kiss and Eddie Kramer. Mm-hmm. I think Eddie was in charge of Aces tracks i think that eddie was in charge of pete's tracks but i think paul was in charge of paul's tracks and i'm pretty sure that gene was in charge of gene's tracks hmm. i could see that and, and then eddie, enough- was, eddie was just the engineer really well oh. it hasn't it been said that gene and paul started to look at eddie as just an engineer at some point isn't there a quote about that or wasn't that in an interview or something that sounds familiar oh. i i but- think that in many ways that's accurate to be honest with you. I can't believe I'm agreeing with Ken. Oh. <laughs> oh, I, I, I totally respect you, Mr. Casey. You are a powerful and attractive man. Oh, boy. Now he, you know, I think, uh, I, I don't think that, that I mean, Eddie Kramer is a great guy to assemble records, but I mean, I think when he's working with, Hen, you know, when he was working with Hendrix, he was an ideas man. When he was working with Kiss, he recorded them. I don't think that he was, you know, an ideas man with Kiss. Well, like, for example, uh, Eddie wanted Pete to sing one of Paul's songs. The only song that I can think that that would have worked for was Tomorrow and Tonight, because it was kind of a rock and rolly type song. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Just try to imagine Pete singing Tomorrow and Tonight. I think I can actually, a, I can totally see that. I'd, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. If we go back to yeah. talking about I Stole Your Love, I, <laughs> I was um. To my ears, I, I, there's nothing un-Peter necessarily about it. But to me, the thing that stands out is that is the sh- is the shaker that's going throughout the song, which to me kind of it dries the whole song out. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it makes like it sound feel almost. Yeah, and it's like it's, it's kind of almost it almost shuffles it to this point where it's like the shaker and the hi hat are kind of together, but they're creating this kind of dryness that that makes it the song kind of it not it's not arena rock. You know? But it is when when they play it live. I mean, when they yeah. open that, when they open with that song, or even when it's on live too, you hear that song the way it was supposed to be, and um, you're like, wow, this is this is a great song and a great opener. Oh yeah, it's, it's goosebumps. Phenomenal. That echo on the, you know, find out you're failing your test. You know, like that kind of thing. Just great song. That was one of the. That, I think the first song that my friends ever played me when I first heard Kiss. They like listen to this song. The lead singer says. I want to feel your tit. <laughs> How does it feel to find out I'm feeling your tit? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm never going to listen to that song the same way again. I think that's a better lyric, actually. <laughs> I want to feel your tit. 
<laughs> Paul Stanley played lead guitar in the first half of this song, so and you can tell too. Yeah. Nah, it's great. I, that that synergy between those two guitarists on this record is phenomenal. And actually, I'm reading some of the notes here uh, from uh, Kiss Fact. Thank you, Julian Gill. And um, later on in the record, there's there's possibly Sean Delaney playing some guitar and bass. So huh. I take I take back what I said. Maybe it's not an album that's so purely just the four of them. You know, credit where credit is due. Eddie Kramer plus Kiss equals great guitar tones, always. So moving on to track two, this is one of my absolute all-time favorite Kiss songs, and really, I think it's due to the recording. The studio version of Christine 16 is so perfect, just pitch perfect throughout. I don't know how other people felt. Let me ask the, the folks that got this record back when it came out. You know, Was it a yay or a nay? You heard the pianos, the kind of, um, I don't know, like old-style old rock and roll, him talking in the middle. Was that a thumbs up or a thumbs down for people? Ken, what about you? Well, it, it it reminded me of the Big Bopper kind of a thing. It was very rock and roll. Okay. And same with Hooligan later. You know, there's there's touches of and 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 of course the cover version of then then, he, then she kissed me. Right. It it kind of does have kind of uh, the fifties rock and roll feel to it at times. Yep. And I, I guess the guys in the band didn't like the piano intro. Ace didn't, I think. Yeah, they thought it was schmaltzy or whatever. You know, like it was old hat. I can't imagine the song without it, and I don't think that they ever really replicate it live to my satisfaction. But that that piano is, is absolutely perfect for the track, I think, yeah. and I, I don't miss it live. I mean, it, it depends on the lineup. I think when when I hear the, the original lineup playing it, um, like in '77, for example, I don't know, it just doesn't have the same oomph. I think the Revenge tour they did a great job, but I don't know. I always loved the song live. I thought it was really cool that they brought it back out on the Rock the Nation tour. But what I think is really funny about the live version of this song is, I don't remember which city it was, and maybe one of you guys can help me out with it, but Gene is trying to do the talking section. I guess he forgot the words, and he's just like, you were a freshman, I was a senior. Yeah, that was when he did it with the Jim Blossoms, wasn't it? Um, I think it, you know what, I think it might have been when he did it on, on Letterman with the Jim Blossoms. I think that's my, where, it, where it was from, but I thought it was hilarious. I'm like, dude, Gene, do you know any of your songs? <laughs> yeah. Right. You're a freshman and I'm a senior. Yeah, yeah we'll drop that in here. I gotta, I gotta hear that. <laughs> a 16 year old freshman too. What a, that must be some one stupid chick. <laughs> Ouch. Oh my God, Joe, that's killer. Our next guest revolutionized the use of facial makeup for rock and roll bands everywhere. And they are joined tonight by one of the many bands featured on their new CD. I have a copy of it right here. Ladies and gentlemen, here they are, Gin Blossoms and Kiss.
say freaks the girls, you're But when I saw you coming out of that school that day, I knew it, baby. You're a freshman, I'm a senior. I actually prefer the Alive 2 version. I think it's a little more rocking. And also, um, I think that in, in hindsight now, this, the, the version on the album, his speech in the middle, is now almost sounds like somebody doing a parody of Gene Simmons. Because it's his real voice. It's not, he, there's no growl to it as, like there is when he does it live, or at least on Alive 2. It's just his straight voice, which is, to me, the voice that everyone parodies when they do a Gene Simmons impersonation. That's your cue, Ken. You know, Joe, I don't normally say this to comic book writers, but... <laughs> well, it's like, uh, it's like the um, Holiday Inn song on his solo. Uh, um, I know, you write me. Like <laughs> yeah. You send your picture. I mean, his, uh, it's, it's so hilarious because his real voice... His natural, just sort of talking voice is so much creepier than the sort of demon voice, the growl yeah. voice. I yeah. agree. Wasn't he, wasn't he really creepy on, um, what interview was that? Um, where he was with a Tootie Field, then he oh, was sorry. just talking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, the Mike Douglas show. Yeah. Mike Douglas show, that's it, that's right. it. I thought it was, creepy I thought and awkward. Creepy and awkward <laughs> and just, just trying to say, hey, I know I don't belong here but I'm going to make the best out of it. And I, I always I liked it. when he just kind of explodes and goes, <laughs> <laughs> out of nowhere. <laughs> the, the demo 
for Christine 16. I think it's something we'd all love to hear because it's Gene working with the Van Halen brothers. Has has either of the Van Halen brothers ever confirmed that they did that work with Gene publicly? I mean, I think that they, I think the recording is somewhere in the hands of someone, and I think that it's. I'm, I'm, but that's well. Listen though, listen. Uh, think about it for just a second. Has has either Eddie or Alex Van Halen ever publicly confirmed that they demoed songs with Gene Simmons that ended up on Kiss Records? I believe that in interviews they have talked about doing some stuff with Gene, but they never like. I don't think Eddie's ever come out and said, "Yeah, we did." Christine sixteen and got love for sale. You know what I'm saying? I am casting an aspersion over that claim that that Gene demoed. The, I mean, it's a great urban legend that in this era of where you know anything that's been recorded on tape has come out somewhere, leaked somewhere, and these have never surfaced. No one has ever claimed to have heard them. Not even other insiders who who've said, "I heard them, but I don't know where they are." It's never happened. And it's not like Gene is someone who, uh, he, let's just say he's known for, for spinning an urban myth, you know, that makes him look good. Other than that, I think that that guitar solo in Christian 16 sounds like it could have been written by Eddie Van Halen. You know and apparently I mean? it was. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. I believe Ace, it happened. Ace copied it. Gene says that, according, well, according to Gene, he says that those demos will never see the light of day until the Van Halen brothers give their permission for their release. Right. Total bullshit. That's I, I, that's not how demos work. No, well, if listen, if it is, we'd, we'd have heard it. Gene, Gene would own those demos. There'd be nothing to clear with the Van Halen brothers. You know, those would have been, if not owned outright by Gene, they would have been owned by... You know, Bill Coin, Rocksteady, you know, whatever, you know, organization you want to put on there. Uh, the, the Van Halen brothers, who at that point had no record deal, you know, nothing, nothing, uh, no weight behind their, you know, careers at all. Why would they have a say in whether those demos would ever see the light of day? They'd have none. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, have, it's, it's I mean, they're not credited as co-writers or anything on that. They, they, the fact that you have, you need, signatures of Eddie and Alex for, for those demos to be heard is absolutely 100% ridiculous. I think we know now who's sitting on those demos. And his name <laughs> is Joe, Joe Casey. I wish. Uh-huh. I'd, play him right, I'd play him right now. <laughs> I want to hear them. And I'm not even a Van Halen fan, but I just want to hear them. No, um, I, they're a great band, and I just I never got into them. Six Sense on a Friday night. I'm Nikki Six. We're hanging out with Gene Simmons. So, Gene, there's a lot of rumors that Eddie Van Halen um, wanted to join Kiss in the early days. I mean, what's the what's the story behind that? So, 1982. Yeah, we're doing this record, and um, Eddie calls Edward. By the way, I'm really I gotta I gotta talk to you. Gotta talk to you. So he comes down to Record Plant, a recording studio that we were recording in. And he came in and he was listening to, uh, hey, I like this, I like this, big drums. I know Tommy liked that record. And he plays me. And it's, it's him on a synth. It's a synth, but yeah. I, I never heard synth sound like that. I'm going, that, Eddie, what, what's this? Oh, that's, our, that's the next record. Go, really? Well, I, I'm hearing this before the guitars, right? He goes, no, there's no guitars, just that. I went, all right, well, that's cool, but I got to talk to you. So I take him to lunch across the street, and he actually tells me, he says, I want to leave the band, and I want to join KISS. 
Wow. I can't take Roth. He's driving me nuts. We're not getting along. I've got this this sound in my head that I want Van Halen to do. Roth doesn't want to do it, and we're just getting to a point where he's believing his own hype, blah, blah, blah. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and I remember feeling proud of what I said. I said, don't do it. Stay with the band you started. There's no room for you. You're too big. You're, you cast too much of a shadow to be the guitar player in Kiss. You need to have your own band because you write, you you have a sound. You know, for there are visionaries, guys that come with a point sure. of view. And uh, he went back and was miserable for 20 or 30 years. But over the course, you know. It would have never worked. It would never, never. work. Never. We wouldn't have even got a record. Not out. even close. No. Couldn't even get through a record. I'm love, sure. love to hear a demo of it. It'd be pretty fun. Well, I did. Fun, we, fun, fun for us. But I got I, I got Alex and um, Eddie on Christine sixteen, uh, love him and leave. No, uh, got love for sale and tunnel of love. They recorded three demos with me, uh, drums, guitar, and I played bass. So we did that. That's cool. And so what else is new? <laughs> <laughs> Gene, yeah. thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You're a powerful and attractive man. <laughs> I'd say the same for you. Okay, enough with the bromance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our next track, let's go around the room. Got Love for Sale. What are your thoughts? Love it. It's so rare to get two Gene songs in a row and well worthwhile. It's a throwaway, it's filler, but it's like one of those songs I always go to when I say, let's get some great filler on this record. This is great filler. It's early for me. It's early for filler, and um, it's I don't like the G does it twice on this album. The 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 backing vocals. Where he does this like kind of this swoopy thing. God love for sale. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, Yeah, he does that. Yeah, both times. I, I think it sounds like there's just all Gene in the background, like he's doing his own backing vocals, and sort of like no one's there telling him, "Man, come on, that's not that cool." <laughs> He's also kind of funky on this track and Almost Human. They both have a kind of funk kind of yes. vibe to them. But yeah, yeah in the, in the, the, the backing vocals I can ignore because the bass line to the I Got Love for Sale is so aggressive and amazing and great. Yeah. And the guitar solo Ace just cooks on this song. It's unbelievable. Joe? It's a, it's a pretty good song. I would say the, the performance of it on all levels, the, the vocals, um, I mean the lead vocal and the guitar solo are way better than the song itself. Um, I mean, it's a killer Gene lead vocal. I mean, it's, it's just really, just the, how he sings it is just fantastic. And, and, and you're right, the guitar solo is, is great too. And they're, they're better than the song deserves. You know what I mean? <laughs> Uh-huh. And it and yeah. it lifts it, but yeah, it's odd that this song is the third track in because it is a is total filler song. Mm. I I always liked the song. I mean, it was one of the ones that um, you know back in the cassette days when I'd love going on cassette. I never skipped over it. You know, I never hit fast forward. I always loved hearing the song. I yeah. thought it was like, wow, wouldn't it be great to hear them do this one live? You know, before I knew what you know the staples of the live set was or are. But um, I think it's a great song, and uh, Mr. Speed will probably do it this year. Nice. That over here. Well, this going back to what we were talking about, the production value, this, again, it sounds like Gene produced it. See, on this album, I can hear where they were going to go 
on their solo album. Absolutely, 100%. That's so yeah. right, yeah. And that material was demoed around the same time anyway, so yes, correct. And then you take it to Dynasty, which was the next step. You can also hear tracks that would also work in their solo wheelhouse, if you will. But on Although this gotta, album, you can see the splintering. Although yeah, i got to say, when, when Gene does his own production, there's way more bass. There's more bottom end, and there's yes. so little bottom end on this record. You could tell, yeah, which which uh, mixing sessions Gene was present for. It was probably his mm-hmm. own song, so the bass is cranked up. Yeah, I love it. Love it. So our next track is probably the Ace Frehley track that most people think of when they think of his work in Kiss, Shock Me. What can I say? I mean, this is my favorite recorded guitar solo of all time. Of Kiss or anyone? Of I mean, of anyone. You know, like, it, it, it's it's neck and neck with, like, maybe Comfortably Numb, you know, the studio version. It, it Just in terms of, it's, it is the perfect Ace Frehley guitar solo. It tells a story, has a beginning, middle, and end. It's got the kind of repeated passages. There's, like, theme and variation. It's just the perfect Ace Frehley guitar solo, the same way that Black Diamond is and Got to Choose and Firehouse. And the the the, the vocal performance is great. Whoever the hell that is on the drums, I, I am going to say it's Peter Chris because it sounds like it is. <laughs> I'm going to say it's Peter Chris, too. Yeah, yeah, me as well. He plays the same drum fill intro in, in uh, a couple other songs on that album. But some of the crap he's doing with, between the snare and the hi-hat is just so... Perfect and sophisticated and simple at the same time. It's great. It's your typical shuffle pattern, and it's just, it's one of those songs when I first started doing it, I don't know, 10 years ago when I first started the Kiss tribute thing. Um, it was one of those ones where I was like, I gotta get this pattern right because it's so cool and it's such a signature, um, so drum pattern. So it was one of those ones where I was like, okay, this is, this is exactly, you know, what he's doing. Morgan? Yeah, well, this, um, this, this is the first song on the album that has, like, the guitar tones are more saturated, and it's like they're thick. And you can, if you're listening to it in headphones, you can hear the doubled rhythm guitars, and it's really it's like fatter sound than anything else. And um, it's I think yeah, I love the guitar solo. It's it's classic, and, and, and especially in the very middle of the solo when it, when you get that the shift in guitar tones, all of a sudden it's that part, and it's changed. Change in and the fader at the very end. It's just like it was well done, and I think I think Eddie Kramer brought out the best in Ace in the soloing, and I think I think Absolutely. it shows it shows here. And Ace was probably just like thrilled to work with Eddie, and you know they did a great job. Mr. Casey, I would say you know overall I think the the you know we were talking about the bass being so good on this record. I agree partially because the guitars are so weak. To me, the rhythm guitars, there's less distortion than even there was on Rock and Roll Over and even on some of the first three records, except for this song, which is, you know, like we were just saying, it, it, it's heavy guitars, heavy rhythm guitars, and it's really, to me, because it's Eddie Kramer involved, to me, this is the first song of Ace's solo album, mm-hmm. you know, from the, from the writing and the whole thing, and, you know, it's also, to, to, to to go back to the links to Destroyer, it's the first song that um, is a self-referential song, and not just because of the whole, you know, whatever the Florida electrocution and all that shit, but just because it's it's a it's an Ace Frehley song, kind of about Ace Frehley's persona in some ways, you know. Right. Um, 
And as as you know, the first song he ever sang lead on, it, I don't think, you know, it's one of those, this is one of those sweeping statements. I don't think anyone has ever made such a bold song statement their first time out as a lead singer, any to anywhere in rock and roll than Ace did with this song. I mean, it's the first song he's ever sung on a record. Right. That to me is amazing. That it's that indelible, that classic, that long lasting. You know, nobody, nobody does that. It's nobody. Especially I don't care who, from the Beatles wait. on down, nobody has has come out so strong on their first lead vocal than than Ace did. You know, not just his performance, which is you know, which is good, it's typical Ace, but with the songwriting, the production, the song itself. It, I mean, it's 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 historically it's the high point of this record. And we know it's a bit autobiographical because of the legend of the electrocution in Lakeland. So it's like it's yeah. got that. That you know, we know it's like, oh, he did you hear Ace finally got electrocuted? And it's sort of like it's that. It's like kind of that embodying that statement of um, taking that experience and making it into you know talking about a girl. It's perfection. It's just top to bottom. And and leave it to Ace to bring in a song that, that gets everyone on the track, that gets, you know, the great backing vocals from Gene and Paul and the you know, just top to bottom, a sick, sick, perfect kiss song. When when people talk about Psycho Circus they say that the best or most kiss like yeah. song on the album into and the it, and, and yeah, it, into the void. And it was the one that basically brought all those four players back together. This is the one time on this album when everybody's pushing in the same direction. Didn't Ace play bass? You know, it, it could very well be, although it has that very percussive bass sound uh, that, you know, that you know, that, like that Gene Simmons gets, too. I mean, I don't know. I've wondered that. Well, I, and I think you can hear Gene in the backing vocals, too. He's mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gene's yeah. definitely there. Yeah. Gene said this in Kistry. When Ace brought Shock Me into the band, he did all that on his own. We had nothing to do with the arrangements, and we knew immediately that it was a terrific song. I, I think the, the, the call and response vocals in the chorus, I feel like Gene and Paul, that's something that they would write. Probably. Put on your black leather. Yeah. Could I be. I see that. So our next track is Tomorrow and Tonight. <laughs> fun. It's a fun song. It's easy. You know, it um, it was never going to be the hit of, you know, rock and roll night status. And yet, you know, I'm glad they wrote it because it rounds up side one um, really effectively, I think. I love the uh, I love the live version of this song where there's like eight Pauls on the background. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, Paul, <laughs> you know, you listen to that song, you're like, is it Paul doing the backup? And what's, what's going on here? I mean, uh, to me. He's, this song is probably he the, is just that damn good, Andrew. He's that, he's that good. Yeah, he really is. Um, this song and one of the ones are probably the only throwaways on the album for me. One of the ones that um, I don't seek it out to listen to it, um, but um, I won't skip over it. It's not one of those ones where I wake up on a Thursday and say, oh, I want to listen to this song, but it's, <laughs> I know, it, it's probably one of my least favorite on the album. Mine too. I, I, I don't go, yeah, I don't go to it, but I, it's like, it's, it's a basic, you know, blues based rocker that, it was the basis for Poison's career in the 80s. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's one of the songs to me that make like, the hodgepodge feel of this record. Uh, I think it's, it, it, it sounds far away, you know, like the rest of them sound close up yeah. to me. It's, it's self-referential in a bad way. I mean, it's got 
this weird piano in the core in the uh, solo, which distracts from the guitar solo to me, which is a great guitar solo. It's got guitar the, solo. It's got the female, you know, background vocals. So it's it's trying for weird production uh, ideas, uh, but it just doesn't really work. The, the Alive Two version is much better because, I mean, I really do think it's a great ace guitar solo, and on Alive Two you really hear it. Yeah. You know. Um, However much that was Paul directing him, you know, we'll probably never know, but that guitar solo saves the song live. Um, but it's, it's such a, it's such a calculation, you know, and, and they've said it, you know, they've come out and said, and, and, and said it publicly that they were trying to recapture it. So you can't really hit them too hard on that front, but, um, yeah, that's what it was. Great guitar solo though. So I'm just going to throw this out. If Peter Chris would have sung Tomorrow Tonight, do you think you would have liked it better or the, the same? Probably the same, I think. And that's me being a huge Peter fan. Maybe a little better. I, I think it would have been better. Same here. I think. And it especially been on the album, with I think a Peter lead vocal would have made the piano and the and the female background vocals make more sense. And it would have set people up for Peter's solo record. I mean, you know, having heard this on Love Gun, which had this huge, you know, successful record, right? It, maybe people would have taken the, well, I don't know. But it, you, you get what I'm trying to say. And with that, we wrap up our discussion for side one of Love Gun. Join us next month for part two of Shut Up and Play Love Gun, side two. <laughs> And that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. Big thanks to Julian and everyone at kissfaq.com. They've got great information there and a terrific message board, too. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late great Eric Carr, and the late great Mark St. John. You are KISS, and we are your army. Podcast is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podkist is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podkist crew, thank you for listening to Podkist, the KISS fanzine for your ears. There's a dog again. Actually, I thought that was Gary doing like the... Wow, wow, wow. Wow, 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 wow.